This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Welcome to episode 21 of the Practice of Learning Teams. Today's podcast is the second of a series of four episodes as we take the podcast on a virtual tour of Australia and looking at how the Australians are applying learning teams to improve organisational learning. On today's show, we are joined by Stephen Harvey and Tony McConaughey from Urban Utilities. Urban Utilities is one of the largest water distributor retailers in Australia. They manage and maintain a vast network of more than 18,000 kilometres of water and sewer pipe, which, if laid end to end, would stretch from Australia to London. From their infrastructure maintenance and IT departments to customer-facing contact centre and community engagement teams, their workforce plays a part in keeping the water flowing and the toilets flushing for 1.4 million people in Queensland, Australia. On today's podcast, Stephen and Tony will share their learning team's journey and we will explore a range of views, including learning teams versus ICAM and Taproot, the importance of having a strategy to embed learning teams, the power of storytelling, the role of HSRs, who are workplace health and safety reps and learning teams, using learning teams for critical risk analysis, dealing with larger groups and learning teams, the importance of the facilitator to reflect to improve performance, the importance of coaching and mentoring others, and finally the importance of post-drop review and feedback into the system for learning. Let us now start the conversation with Stephen Harvey. I look after five council areas, um, probably got about a thousand staff. Uh, basically, we've been on a safety two, safety differently journey for about three years now. Excellent. Thank you. And yourself, Tony? Yeah, so my name's Tony McConaughey. Um, I've been uh, taking a bit of a lead role in helping to operationalise the safety differently, the safety two and hop thinking. Um, so my role over the past three years has sort of been to help draft and develop and implement the strategy around how we will, I guess, focus initiatives to help realise some of the theory. Um, so, yes, yeah, Steve and I have been partnering up on this journey for, well, approaching three years now. Hey, that's great. And from your perspective, um, how did the, um, the learning team journey start? Did you see it as being part of HOP? Did you see it as being something... Um, separate part of safety. So, funny, what was your? How did the learning journey start? Who convinced you? Uh, for me, Brent, I was sort of starting to get into this stuff probably about 2014, 2015. And I was starting to introduce some of the concepts into a, a business. I, I worked in a labour hire organisation and I could never influence or I could never have an, an, a, like an impact on the businesses who were having events. You know, like, but what I thought to myself is, well, we're a big part of this sort of event too. It'd be our people that were getting injured. So what I would do is I would bring our team 
So we would send people to host employers and then they would get injured. And then the host employers would say, no, 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 but we'll do our own investigation. You guys have got nothing to do with this. So I would bring our own team in and sort of say, right, let's have a discussion. Let's just have a, let, let's sort of have a reflection basically on how we could have improved these, sort of this interaction with the client. So I started doing that about 2014, 2015. And then um, I was really trying to push my organization to get to start doing some more of this, but they were embedded in ICAM. That, that was their thing. That's all they wanted to do. But, but that's okay. You know, I could still use some of my learnings from readings like Todd Conklin's work and seeing some of like Bob Edwards' activities. That's basically where it came from for me. And then when I came into Urban Utilities, we started doing some work with Southpac. And we've done the, the hop training there. And it's just really, it's, it's really, that's what's pushed us on from, from that sort of time. It's, you know, whereas before it was sort of, I would just try and on an ad hoc basis at Urban Utilities, we were really like, no, no, we want to do this. This is the way to go. So we were really focusing on learning a lot. Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll add to that, I guess. So the reason for wanting to have a crack at learning teams was we had a, a clear, evident problem to solve in the organization so the approaches that we were taking to try and learn um we were using taproot and icam to try and learn from when things go wrong um we also had a a position of um, operations getting further and further away from the health and safety function and there was a, a big gap in terms of what um, actually went on out of sight versus what health and safety got told. So we found ourselves in a pretty defensive, passive and aggressive defensive position. Uh, and there was a clear lack of information flowing between um, head office and, and out at site. And so it was about four and a half years ago, um, Kim Bancroft joined as our health and safety manager. I've never worked in health and safety until she joined four and a half years ago. I'm a change management background. And um, uh, what I saw from this, this new view of safety got me super excited. Um, I started reading up about it, listening to all the podcasts, learning from Steve and Kim. And um, we had a real appetite for change there. So our CEO and our executives um, were... were they they had they wanted to do something different. So we already had the kind of the flame had been lit as such. Um, so we had that kind of momentum of people wanting to try something else out because it was just not working. Um, so that's when the new strategy sort of came into play. We developed the new strategy three years ago, and part of that strategy was um, trying to frame safety as that ethical responsibility rather than a bureaucratic one. And what fell underneath that was, well, we need to change the way that we um, learn about work. Well, we weren't learning about work beforehand. So we want to learn from normal work. And how do we do that? Well, we, we clearly do that through the learning teams approach. Um, so we've tried to flip learning from incidents to actually just trying to learn from normal work through, through the learning teams and the work insights approaches, which we can talk a little bit about. Sure. So from what I'm hearing, you've identified the learning opportunities from everyday work activities. Yeah, absolutely. And you're yeah. still using it for a little bit of event-based. And are you using it, Tony, for management of change? 
yeah, so the, what I love, this is what I really love about learning teams is we we use it for our decluttering projects. So we use customer-based design methodology as well as pro-sci methodologies for change. Um, but within that, we've embedded the learning teams approach um, through the uh, the gates of change that we maneuver through with all of our all of our projects and milestones that we've built that map to the obje- objectives of our strategy. Um, so the learning teams is they're they're a, a critical part of the early part of the projects and also the evaluation. So all the way through it, we've adopted learning teams through management of change. That's a key key part of it. But I I, I love it because we just we use it to learn. From you know awkward jobs, we use it to learn from near misses. Like the guys love it because they have the same experience when something goes wrong as they do for when we just want to talk about a post job review. So it's the same. It's the same constructive, no blame. Those hop principles. It's the same experience, and those stories start to kind of circulate out of sight and become the norm. So it's been successful, but I mean, the stories of success take longer to replace stories of blame from years ago. So it has taken, it's a slow burn to replace those blame stories. Right. Oh, I can understand that because you've got an institutional element that's going to exist. It takes time. It's not necessarily trust. It's just that sort of onset of things. And um, look, um, in the book, The Practice of Learning Teams, we actually... um, we, we, we push this concept of operational learning further. We describe the fact that what in a learning team, what the organisation learns from a learning team and what workers learn is actually quite different. And a lot of what we're capturing at the moment is actually about organisational learning. And we're not often having that, that reflective conversation with the, with the workers about what they gain from it and we push it even further. We even ask the question, what did the facilitator learn from it as well? Because those reflective components have to sit across all those stakeholders in, in that way. Do you, do you mean reflections as a, as a facilitator or what we discover as part of... No, as a facilitator. Yeah. 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 Um, because if, if we don't... So there's, there's two things... Um, we, we, we have this notion that we, we want to build this critical ref, critical reflection or critical thinking skill with workers. Mm-hmm. We want them to be able to recognise when something moves away from its standard mode or its normal mode. I, I don't think it's, I don't know how you guys feel, I don't think it's possible that we can train workers to identify abnormal modes or failure modes. We're probably more begin to identify when something moves away from its normal what they expected to see. And, and, and that requires them to be able to critically reflect. And um, part of the thing that we've been looking at is how to, how to do the learning team in a way that actually builds that critical reflection skill with workers by being part of a learning team. So that learning becomes intentional mm. rather than learning is incidental. So, so. so, Brent, one of the things that I do when, whenever I get a bunch of teams together was, like, I suppose, probably, like, I've done something on chemicals. I've done a bit of discovery on chemical use in the business. 
and I said to the guys, tell me your chemical stories. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even like an official sort of learning team. It was just, I, I just had the guys together and, and I had them all talking about the stories of how they've misused chemicals, you know, how they use chemicals. And it was, it, it, was, it created a, like a fabulous conversation. Mm-hmm. And I've done that quite a lot. You know, get the guys to say, hey, let's tell me your excavation stories. Tell me, you know, you're used to when you're driving vehicles, you know, tell me what stories, what near misses are you getting? And it just captures this beautiful story about work. And, and real work and I'd like to think that the guys are learning from that too even you know, just when we're just having those nice little oh, they're not yeah they, they totally are off the record actually they're just sort of I'm not capturing any information it's just getting the guys to talk about work and, and I think purely purely by them sharing the narrative amongst themselves because they're within their own peers there is some form of transference of learning correct but totally who would ask, is that incidental or, or should that be deliberate? So how can we do the learning team so that becomes a deliberate function or process rather than an incidental process? That, that's what we think is the interesting challenge. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, we've been sort of getting, getting the HSRs to take, I guess, take a bit of a role in sharing back some of those learnings. So um, we, we'll, we, we get the HSRs for a full day every yeah. month. So we, we, we change that from an hour and a half to, to a full day and we, we, we break that in half, basically. So half, half the day is heading out to site and doing some critical control work insights. So learning, learning about high-risk work as done, so normal high-risk work. Um, and then the other half of the day is to actually um, get them to suggest learning team topics for us to sort of ha- have a cracker going through either one or two um, just um, tasks and activities that they do um, so we can actually gather some really good, rich stories and then share those back through the crews, through the voice of the workers, share them at toolbox talks, shared operational learning updates, um, making sure that people are learning from, I guess, yeah, verbal updates from people in their own team rather than from someone from health and safety. Absolutely, yeah, and that's that contextualisation of risk becomes so important. And yeah. that's what yeah, guys, systems aren't good at. Yeah, I think the guys will take the... Like I, I'm really sort of focused on not telling the guys about events that have happened. You know, I'd like them to try and find it out for themselves or like... Um, that's that's a big thing for me, you know. Like if it comes from their peers and HSRs, you know, like the, just the stories are better. Like these guys are on the same level, so they can. They, they, I just think the stories sink in better when it doesn't come from someone like like me. Even though I've got a great relationship with the guys in the field, it's still it's still important that they're sort of capturing those stories from each other. Yeah. Well, you, well, you you're never going to be that person in the field. Never, never. It's too that's hot right. out there, too dirty. Because we, we have this saying that it's only workers who are exposed to residual risk. Correct, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no one else is exposed. So, so yeah, they're always going to learn but more from their peers than from someone else. So, so if we think about that, what, what do you guys, what do you think makes a successful learning teams facilitator on your journey? What, what makes someone good at doing learning teams? Uh, I suppose I can have a crack at that first. Dave so, is pretty good at them. He is. <laughs> I, I, I am pretty good at it. Oh, I'm going to give my slap in the back here. <laughs> <laughs> I 
For, for me, Brent, it's like, I'm pretty strong when it comes to learning teams. Like, I don't mind telling people to shut up um, in a nice way. So I will set the scene right from the very beginning, saying, look, I, I, I won't really tolerate people talking over each other. But I try and do it in a fun way, in a jokey way. And, the, and it definitely comes across like that. But I'll say to the guys, like, everyone will get a say. Everyone will... Everyone will get equal amounts of opportunity to talk and tell us what's tell us the stories of what's happening in the field. So for me, it's really about making sure that the room is nice and safe, like creating psychological psychological safety for those guys to talk. And I've been really lucky over the past couple of years to force those relationships so that they do talk. And sometimes, even for me, that those some of those stories can be quite confronting. Mm-hmm. So that that's probably one of the great strengths that I have is I'm able to sort of keep the room controlled and keep everyone sort of focused. If I, if I start to see side conversations happening, I'll, I'll get up out of my chair and I'll go and tap them on the shoulder and, and I, or else I'll just say to them, hey, shut up. I'm trying, like, you'll get your say in a minute. And then, but then I caveat that though by saying, like, you've probably got, you guys are probably talking about something really brilliant there and, I'm, and we're going to miss out, miss out on it because you're not telling us it's all. But that's probably a couple of the things that I'm really quite strong on when it comes to learning team facilitation. What about you, Tony? I, I think the thing that I try and drill in with all of our leaders that do facilitate learning teams, and even when I'm doing them myself, is, is to be ridiculously curious just about normal work. So don't don't get hyper-excited or, or really keen and intense around um, a particular event if something does go wrong. Uh, so we really try and reinforce with our facilitators that um, just just ask nice, open questions and draw draw out the stories from everyone within the room. Um, so that preparation piece, we really, we really sort of hone in on making sure as a facilitator and the scribe, be aware of your roles, prepare prepare some line of questioning um, and, and leave a really chunky element of freedom within that line of questioning, but know what you want to try and achieve at the end of the learning team approach. So it's not just a wild conversation where lots of stories are uncovered. Um, so that, that, that ability to kind of think in the moment and, and theme and pattern as you are actually going through the learning theme is really important to sort of draw out and connect the dots. So the scribe and the facilitator together, um, essentially partnering through the process, but also using that soak time really, really effectively in the middle of the process to kind of check in and actually um, review, analyze and um, check in for what what are those things that we want to learn from once we do move out of discovery. So actually being quite, you should actually be pretty pretty exhausted at the end of a learning team because you're actually thinking intensely about what's going on in the room and reading people um, and drawing out the necessary bits of critical information about about work. Um, and then to Todd, like to Todd's point as well, Todd Thompson, like you really once you get to the event, it, it's pretty boring. It's not all that exciting. Um, so you should have learned everything you need to learn by your conversations on normal work around that topic. So it's excavation and trenching. You just talk about what, how does that normally play out for you? Let, let's talk about it. Um, the event is completely separate to that first learning team anyway. The event is not spoken about at all. 
in the first learning team. So, yeah, the facilitator's role is to keep people away from the event and learn about normal work. And then the secondary learning team, the facilitator needs to engage around the event itself. Um, but the learnings are uh, far less juicy once you actually get to the event yeah, itself. You've got everything. And we sort of describe it like a pyramid, that, that, first, that first thing around problem identification is about depth and breadth and getting that deepness and that, and that last layer of the pyramid should have a lot of deepness. And then after your soak time, you're then going to turn it into a diamond shape. We're then going to narrow down from that depth and really get into the guts of it in, in that way. Um, and, and do you think, I mean, from your perspective, guys, um, what, what's an ideal size for a learning team? What have you been finding through this through this process? Uh, well, me, I, I've done, actually, I've done one that was I thought was really, really amazing. There was only two people there. And then I've done one that I found quite challenging, and there was about 12 people in the room, I think. So ideally, we, the last, actually, the last one that I did with Tony, funny enough, was that we'd had a discovery around checklists with our HSR team, and there was about six in the room, and that was excellent. That was perfect yeah, size. Yeah. We were able to get lots of people, lots of, inter, uh, lots of interaction from everyone, lots of fair comments, and yeah, that, that was, I found that was like an ideal number. It was a, it was a great session. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, our, our the, procedure. Yeah. Sorry, our procedure. Yeah, our procedure does stay normally around six attendees. It stays in our process, um, and that—that's the people that do the work. No, no one, no one else in the room for the learning team. No, no SMEs, no leaders. Right. It's the people that build in their hands. That's it. So what we found, and we actually published, there was some research that we found that basically said, what's the ideal size? for people to look at complex issues. And it basically said um, three to eight was optimum. So it said you need a minimum of three. So one or two, they're the same. You need a minimum of three and about eight. And it said, there were, and there was no gain after eight. What, what we've typically seen is that once you start getting past about eight, personalities start to come more into play. So we've done learning teams with up to 40 people. But what we do is we have, um, we, we have multiple facilitators performing different functions and different roles to do that. So we have a, a big group, then we might break them into smaller groups and, and we do like different presentation things with them so that everyone gets involved. But yeah, from a facilitation point of view, it's really hard. If you get a big group, it's taxing. Yeah, well, that, that one I was t talking about, about where, where we were trying to get the guys to come up with some solutions around excavations, that was quite a big group, and we just couldn't, like, they kept breaking off into little chats themselves, and I found myself getting a, a bit frustrated, actually, because I kept telling me, like, come on, get back in, come back in, come back in. That's So I, I totally agree with the research there. If it's between three and eight, that's I would... I, I concur, yeah. Yeah, so that, that wasn't on learning teams. That was just on complex um, solving, solving complex things. It was actually about solving complex maths. Okay, and it was really good research. So, because um, a, a bit like Dave Proven and Drew Ray, I'm quite keen on some of the science that sits behind this as well. So we went out and looked to try and find some science in that. So you guys definitely are in the right path. 
I actually had Dave Proven sit in on one of my learning teams, Brent. It was that was quite a. <laughs> he, was doing, he was doing some. He was doing some work at Urban Utilities, and he came in and sat in the room while I was doing it. And then afterwards, I said, "Oh, that was brilliant, Dave." One, and he's like, "Oh, well, you could have done this better. You could have done that better." It was awesome. It was good to get the feedback. Absolutely, that's it's really really helpful because look, the, the thing is, um, no one is ever going to be a master. I mean, every time we run learning teams. As I said before, we do a deep reflective practice yeah. so that because we believe that we can learn something from every single thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't do that, then it basically you sort of end up being slightly arrogant that you've mastered it. Yeah, and, and that's that's part of that whole process because it is difficult because as safety people, we we, we have been used to being the expert to being a knowledge holder, to being a domain owner. That, that's what we've done. No, I mean, I don't know if I'd, agree, if I would agree with you on that. Maybe in the past I might have been like that, but certainly since I've started discovering sort of the work that we're doing now, I, I always have reflections on what I could do better. And I, I would never, like I, I often tell people when I'm conducting my sort of learning activities, I do not know what I'm doing here. I just, I'm super curious and I will ask you lots and lots and lots of questions. I've never ever felt that I was the, the gatekeeper, like I was the, like the holder of all knowledge. So, so I suppose what we're saying there is that how did you develop that skill? Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's just me being a humble Glaswegian. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, actually, I don't quite know. I, like, I've just always... I think probably since I've discovered the work of like uh, Sydney Decker or not something, maybe. Yeah. I've been curious. Yeah, I think I've sort of just realised, like definitely in the past, that I was one of those safety people that you did not want in your organisation. But I think probably for the last five, six years, I have become ultra, like really curious about work and I definitely know there's so much to learn. And in the, in the couple of years I've been at Urban Utilities, I've, I've probably quadrupled my knowledge base just from being here, just be surrounding myself with people like Tony. Correct. So, so you've basically said you've, you've come from being that expert mode to come into that facilitative mode, and that's taken you a period of time. And, and your skill, your skill, do you think your skills changed over time? Facilitation skills? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, totally. Yeah, but, but was that done by was that incidental or was that deliberate planning? Oh, I would say that was definitely incidental. But again, surrounding myself with like Tony's an absolutely brilliant facilitator. Yes. Um, so when you see him doing his and it not even when it's coming to learning teams, just when in general his facilitation skills, like yeah, actually you know much is caught, not taught. So if you surround yourself with amazing like facilitators like what we have in our team, like you, you actually you know you will sort of catch their skills. So I'll, give you, I'll give you one brief example. So before we came into the team, the monthly HSR catch up went for an hour and a half, and the facilitators of that meeting spoke for one hour and twenty nine minutes of that an hour and a half, and the HSRs just sat there and listened. Mm-hmm. Um, so the monologue, delivery, listen, shut up, get out the door. Now we get them for a full day and Steve and I are just asking nothing but 
curious questions and listening and taking notes. That's all. That's all we do. We just continually keep asking questions. We're not. We we know nothing. We just keep asking questions. And that's it. It's that simple. So, so this is where the interesting conversation comes up. If if the desire is to ultimately try and get some of your H, HSRs to become facilitators in their own right, what's going to be the better path? Them learning incidentally, or creating a learning framework to make it deliberate for them, so they can hone that skill. Oh, yeah. Uh, look, I think the skills that Tony and I have, if we had our HSRs doing it, they, they would learn from what the way that we sort of, so they would be learning incidentally. But I just don't know if they've got the, the strength like what we have to be able to just keep asking questions. I think that's a real skill to just keep asking. So we'd, like, we'd probably have to create a framework around that. You, you do, you, you, like, like everything else, you've, you've got to get them into a mode they can sort of develop from. But when I say to organisation, what does that mode look like? They just shake their head. So we don't. We don't know. Yeah, we've, start, we've, started the, we've started the process. So all leaders, all HSRs um, come through a, a really beautifully developed um, program which we've called Safe Simple, um, and that that's our approach to operationalising the safety to safety differently and hop and even HRO principles um, within our within our business. And there's a full day of that on learning. So how do we shift safety from being less of an ethical, uh, sorry, less of a bureaucratic responsibility into more of that ethical space? And so we do a full day around. Um, scenarios and simulations of um, like practicing and fumbling your way through having a crack at facilitating some learning teams in that in that environment, and we sort of help to coach and guide and advise. Uh, and we also just do like little pockets of learning around around event learning and how we can sort of embed that in everyday everyday life as well. So we're, we're doing a lot of like educating and influencing in those in those types of forums, which has helped some way, but we probably haven't jumped in and just gone, you know what, let's just get them to start having a crack and we can coach and guide and advise them through it. So we probably just need to just jump into the water and have a go. See what happens. And obviously you guys are really innovating well in that whole safety to safety differently space. How do you feel about learning teams being used in traditional safety? Oh, geez. It'd be a disaster. Yeah, I think... think Where you go, Tony? Yeah, I think um, the the timing has to be right. Like, you do have to have an an agreement at at CEO level, executive level. So we, 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 we developed the strategy and got got sign off an agreement to to change how we viewed error and how we viewed work mm-hmm. and how that plays out. So we, we, we got sign off to make those changes um, from, from the very top, from the board level, CEO down. So you do actually have to get that first, but you also have to have at least a culture that has progressed to a degree where it can be accepted and acknowledged and and um, valued as an approach. So we were quite lucky that 
over the previous five years at Urban Utilities, which shifted our culture from an aggressive and defensive type nature to something that was becoming a little bit more humanistic and encouraging in its style. So we, we had turned the dial outside of the safety world, but the safety world still had a bubble of dysfunction. So the timing was right. Like, you do have to have that. Like, you do have to have a willingness for people to want to change because there's a problem. Um, so, we, yeah, we were lucky that um, we had some really willing execs and um, area managers and general managers in operations that just just were like, gimme, 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 just give us more of this. Like, we really, really, they really embraced it with open arms. Um, doesn't mean that we've been perfect in our response every time when inevitably something does go wrong. But, um, yeah, look, timing is everything. Yeah, and I think it goes, like, you, the question about learning teams in a safety one style organisation, like, it really depends on the level of maturity, Brent. Like, I've, I've worked in, I've, well, I've partnered with a lot of these organisations over the years, and the thirst for blame is strong. Yep. So, like, when you're going into, like, even if I was doing some work with some organisations now, I would, like, like when you point the finger, there's always three pointing back, and I will find those three conditions that existed that led to that guy making that error. Yeah. So, um, well, error is normal, that's right. Yeah, 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 totally. So I, I think it would really depend on the maturity of the organisation. But like I say, blame is strong in some of these sort of less mature thinking organisations. Well, and, and look, and blame is, is inherent to us as humans. Mm -hmm. When we make our own mistakes, you voice it in saying you're wonderful, Steve. You know, your voice is saying, what the hell? You know, you're yeah, better I mean, than this. You're better than this. And then your other voice is going to come in. It probably sounds a bit like your mother. Your other voice is going to come and say, it's okay, son, everything's going to be good later on. <laughs> yeah, I definitely beat myself up. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So blame's part of that inherent process. Yeah. But that's when it's the inner voice and the outer voice, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this, and this, totally like the learning tech approach can be bastardised just like all of the other previous health and safety processes and investigation methods have been. So the 95% of the battle is... Um, um, what goes on in your in your brain in terms right, of how you right. how you respond? It's all about um, yeah how how you respond, and that that hot principle is. Yeah. Um, we've really tried to instill that of people not getting hyper excited um, when inevitably things go wrong, and they do all the time. Yeah. And, and our objective is to try and make learning team stand by itself as well, um, particularly by basically saying that. Um, we should be able to use learning teams to get deeper and more meaningful understanding just what normal work looks like. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we recently did a, a piece of work that, that pushed the notion of blue line, black line, by extending oh, it further to basically say that there's some other modes that happen in between. Um, and that, you know, it just doesn't... What we're talking about is that, that risk ebbs and flows through the organisation and through the supply chain and the contract chain. And as it ebbs and flows, those different groups see it in a different way. And so, so the examples we talk about, you know, you've got work as imagined, you've got um, uh, work, as, um, uh, work as disclosed, work as reported, you know, work as done, all these things ebb and flow. And that's because everyone is looking at it within their own domain, if that makes sense. Yeah, I would probably say that's one of the big changes that we've had here 
is we've changed the language that we use as well. So we're constantly talking about learning, blah, blah, blah. But I think for the guys in the field, when we talk about like work is imagined, work is done, that really resonates with people. So we sort of, the, the way that I sort of talk about it is I'll go into the field and see the guys, right? So the people in the head office, the work is done land, blah, blah, uh, sorry, work is imagined land, blah, blah, blah. This is, I need to sort of try and get to the, how work is really done in the field and then try and close that gap. So we, like, that's, I think that's one of the things that the guys in the field really, really resonated with. Right. And I think that's interesting because because at the end of the day, we have to plan regardless. Planning has to exist. And that's really what Workers Imagine is all about. But Workers Imagine, as you know, can't can't cater for every potential variable and, and scenario or or thing that happens on on that daily basis. That's what we're relying on humans. I mean, COVID-19 has proven that systems are brittle and people are adaptable. We have things that were heavily compliant-based that the regulators basically put a stop to during COVID. And no one died because those things had been stopped. But prior to COVID, if you hadn't been doing those things, that would have been a breach of, of a regulation. Okay. Uh, just when you were saying there about planning, uh, it's one of my favourite tools is the post-job review. I just don't, I just don't do enough of them though. It's probably, I, I just wish when I first arrived here, the boys were doing a big, big job over a railway line, and I got them in and we had this discussion, and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. Some of the talk, some of the conversations that were coming up about managing multiple contractors and mm-hmm. uh, the, the wrong equipment turning up. It was yep. really a fabulous conversation, uh, but it's just something I don't do enough of. The, the learning that you can get from work after it's been done is just incredible. Yeah, and, and look, in the book, we actually give a couple of examples, real-off examples, where um, we provide an environment that... that um, so these, these were people that were working alone, that were doing um, repairs. So it's fair to say that the system was in a, a dangerous state. It's broken down, hence the reason why they're there. And, and, you know, they've been told, do the traditional hazard ID. And, 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 and would it come as a surprise that the hazards are always the same? You know, crushing, entanglement, you know, trapping. So, of course, it was all driven on hazards, not, not around the situation. So, so we changed it around so that, so that they basically, the, so the system basically was there to help inform, um, help, help to instruct about the stuff that really mattered, but sought their permission. So rather than... The worker, you know, the system permitting them to start, the worker was seeking their permission if they believed that the system was in a safe enough state for them to actually commence the work. But what happened was that at the end of every job, we asked them to reflect on how they thought the work was going to occur versus how the work occurred. And we captured that and we called them, we asked them to record where did they have to make do there was nothing about what went well, what didn't go well. It was just where did they have to make do? And the organisation was getting about 6,500 metrics a month from all these activities. So they went from getting no information to getting a whole lot of information, and it terrified them. <laughs> now, so, but what we said to them was that this information that's being gathered is actually business intelligence. And what we want to do is we want to look for patterns from this information. And it's those patterns that should then allow the organisation to be curious 
and to dig in a bit deeper and get a better understanding about why those patterns coming about. So in their case, what we ended up doing is we simply formed a word cloud. And, and about once a month, a group of workers got together and they ran a mini learning team off the word cloud. Because they understood what those words were, what the context of those words were. And surprisingly, out of the 6,500 metrics a month, it always came down to about the same four or five streams. And those four or five streams is then what allowed the organisation to be a bit more curious and dig in and get better understanding. But does that sound interesting? It's sort of... Because... Yeah, no. It, I mean, it definitely does. Like, I... um. That's the kind of, I guess, it's the, the trick with learning teams is to try and synthesise a ridiculous amount of discovery down to something that's meaningful or, or valuable for operations to kind of sink their teeth into. So we're constantly trying to think of ways that we can add a little bit more rigour to our approach. Um, we, know, we know that our system is pretty misaligned to how work actually gets done. Um, you know, we, our, our system is pretty bloated. It's far from perfect. We've been a huge decluttering mission. Um, so we're trying to use these learning teams approach to bring back um, essentially actions and projects for change to yeah. be able to drive improvements to bring that system a little bit closer to the work that happens. In the next part of this podcast, we will continue the conversation about using learning teams and how to identify waste and safety systems and then to drive actions and improvements. Don't forget, in our final episode for the month, I'll be joined by my fellow colleagues, Glynis McCarthy and Brent Robinson, and we'll conduct a mini learning team on the key threads and themes that emerged during our virtual tour of Australia. Please join us for episode 22 as we continue the learning journey of urban utilities. Thank you listeners for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.